0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to day two of uh, the Carbon Neutrality Summit at uh, UC San Diego. Um, If you have walked around this campus and if you know anything about UC San Diego and also about UC, you will know that... uh, Sustainability is in our DNA at UC San Diego and at UC in general. I mean, we are one of the most sustainable universities in the country, and and you'll hear a lot more about this over time. Uh, We think that as a public research university, it's our responsibility and actually really our role to pioneer sustainable solutions through education, research, and practice. And we do this so that we can all ensure a better and healthier planet and a better future for our children and our grandchildren, as first in the times to come. So, what does this mean? This includes everything that uh, one can do against, uh, one can do for taking action against drought, uh, making solar power generation more predictable, to ensure safe and reliable water supplies, and committing to becoming a carbon-neutral uh, entity by 2025. And this is where. Our colleague, our leader, our visionary president, Janet Napolitano, has taken uh, a very bold step by announcing that UC will be carbon neutral uh, by by 2025, 2025. and she announced this in 2013, uh, and this was one of the first initiatives that she announced when she became president. What does this mean, that as our campus will be net zero greenhouse emissions uh, from our uh, buildings, from our vehicle fleets, something that no major university has done? And my goal is to to also expand that to travel of the faculty. No. (laughs) 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 I was just trying to wake you guys up. Anyway, so these are amazing goals. These are amazing goals that have galvanized all of UC to come together uh, and really look at who we are, what we want to do, and how are we going to make a real impact in this world. So to kick us off on day two, we are uh, it's indeed a great honor and a pleasure to, uh, that we have with us our President Janet Napolitano, sitting right there, and who's been a visionary, visionary leader in sustainability, but in addition in many, many other areas that she's announced initiatives in. I think in the last uh, eight 18 months or two years, we've announced some of the most spectacular initiatives in the UC system ever. So when it comes to carbon neutrality, President Napolitano has said that there is no reason why UC can't lead the world in this quest. And I think she's absolutely right. We all believe in her vision. We all believe in what she's doing. So we are fully behind her. So thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your commitment to accelerate our efforts. And thank you for being here. And a two-time governor in a Republican state, an amazing person who's achieved more than any one of us could ever have. Please welcome Jen DePoletano.
0: Well, thank you, Pradeep, and good morning. Thanks to all of you who are here for uh, what I think is one of the most important events Uh, that we will have at the University of California this year and indeed uh, will be, I think, looked back upon in years to come as a seminal event in our quest uh, to become the world's first carbon neutral university but also to develop the kinds of collaborations, partnerships, the science, the technologies uh, that we can export not just to California but to the world. Um, There are lots of people to thank. Uh, Rahm, of course, the chair of the Climate and Carbon Neutrality Summit and its accompanying report, UC San Diego Vice-Chancellor Sandra Brown, Program Committee Chair David Austin, uh, all have been key organizers. And I want to recognize and acknowledge the University of California faculty members uh, who have collaborated uh, to produce the summit report, Uh, numerous staff members have helped make this summit a reality. Uh, And again, I want to thank the Chancellor of UCSD, who's been a wonderful leader for this campus. So give it up. We're here today because we recognize a stark truth. Climate change poses significant and detrimental risks to our planet And it is arguably the greatest security challenge we face today. We've begun to see some of those risks take root. Climate change impacts issues as varied as disease management, food security, the preservation of water resources, the stability of fragile governments, and the transportation infrastructure that links the world. Indeed, um, just uh, a little over a week ago, the President's National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, gave a talk in which she identified uh, climate change as one of the world's great security risks. Now, addressing these challenges and reducing our carbon footprint is a moral imperative. And I'm pleased that the University of California has taken up this imperative, and is demonstrating global leadership as it does in its part to address the challenges associated with climate change. As Pradeep mentioned, two years ago, we at UC launched the Carbon Neutrality Initiative. This represented a bold pledge by the University of California to become completely carbon neutral by 2025. And when we accomplish this, not if, but when we accomplish this, we will be the first major research university to do so. So, thanks to the commitment of the entire UC community, and we've already begun to take important steps toward reaching this goal. The university has entered an agreement to buy 80 megawatts of solar power, the largest solar energy purchase by a university in the United States. This agreement will ensure that UC maintains a steady supply of cost-effective, climate-neutral electricity for its campuses and medical centers. When fully online, this source of clean energy will keep 88 metric tons of carbon per year from being emitted into the atmosphere. Together with the 35 megawatts of solar power generated on UC campuses, we will produce enough electricity to power 38,000 homes. Uh, We've also committed ourselves to sustainable investment practices. We became the first university in the world to sign the Montreal Carbon Pledge, a commitment to measure and publicly disclose each year the carbon footprint of our investment portfolios. This information will inform carbon asset risk and our own management strategies. The university has also signed the United Nations Supported Principles for Responsible Investment, which commits UC to integrating sustainability, environmental and world responsibility, and ethical governance as factors in our investment decisions. And UC has committed to targeting $1 billion of our investment portfolio over the next five years toward renewable energy and other ventures focused on climate solutions. Those of us in UC leadership fully recognize that the university cannot meet its sustainability goals, operational or otherwise, without the dedication, the expertise, and the creativity of all of our faculty and our students. The Carbon Neutrality Initiative engages them and supports their contributions. The UC's uh, President's Carbon Neutrality Initiative Student Fellowship Program funds student-generated projects that support our carbon neutrality goal. All 10 UC campuses, the UC Office of the President, and the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab participate in this program. So, too, does the Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Uh, The university selected its first group of fellows this last spring, and these students participated together in a California Higher Education Sustainability Symposium in San Francisco this past summer. We've just announced the next batch of fellows and we're excited to learn more about the innovative projects that they propose. For decades, UC faculty members have engaged in research and scholarship around climate change, really being the point of a spear in terms of research in these areas. This academic year, we are recognizing their leadership on this issue through the new Faculty Climate Action Champions Program. This program focuses on faculty members who have exhibited outstanding teaching, research, and public service in the areas of climate change solutions, action, and broad engagement. One faculty member at each campus will receive this award, which will be used for a project during the academic year. Each project will involve students in a community-engaged research endeavor. The program is designed to help meet and focus students' interests in climate action education and to inspire other faculty to help achieve carbon neutrality through engaged research and collaboration. At the same time, we've called on the entire UC community to take an active part in achieving carbon neutrality through a variety of operational changes and everyday actions. This month, we launched the system-wide Cool Campus Challenge as part of our goal to build a strong culture of sustainability across our campuses. Indeed, across the office of the president as well, I'm captain of one of our teams. And Rachel, we will win. (laughs) This friendly competition, runs through early December. It's open to students, staff, and faculty. It encourages participants to form teams and take personal actions to reduce UC's carbon footprint. Thousands of UC community members are participating in the challenge. They're making a real difference in reducing the university's footprint. If you are a UC student, faculty member, or staff member who has not yet signed up for the challenge, I encourage you to join us by visiting coolcampuschallenge.org. Let me add that the university's unwavering commitment to environmental sustainability is not a secret. UC consistently achieves high rankings among the nation's greenest universities. Several of our campuses landed on Sierra Magazine's list of cool schools this year, with UC Irvine topping the list, UC Davis at number two, and UC San Diego at number seven. UC San Diego and and the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, in particular, have demonstrated considerable leadership in the areas of climate change and marine biology. I'm pleased to say that our gracious host campus, for this summit, recently ranked first in the nation and fourth in the world in environmental research, according to the journal Nature. So let's give that a big hand. Now, reaching carbon neutrality and addressing climate change are not merely operational or research goals at the University of California Our cause is a larger one. It's one that calls on the entire UC community to serve as a national model for addressing climate change, finding workable solutions, and sharing our best practices with the rest of the state, the nation, and the world. That's why we convened this summit. We want to bring together all the right people in one room, identify opportunities to scale up UC research and solutions, and foster productive partnerships that can inform and influence policy and research priorities around climate change and carbon neutrality. As you know, the first day of the summit focused on sharing UC research findings that could help us address climate change. Today is about how we move forward. We will identify successes here at UC and throughout California. We will determine the current needs of our state, nation, and world. We will recommend effective global solutions. The UC Climate Solutions Group has compiled a groundbreaking report called Bending the Curve, 10 Scalable Solutions for Carbon Neutrality and Climate Stability. This is a set of recommended actions that researchers, policymakers, activists, philanthropists, institutions like the university can implement immediately to achieve real progress around climate change and make significant strides toward carbon neutrality. These recommendations include promoting current strategies that will help us make, meet our 2030 goal for carbon reduction and developing new technologies and solutions to meet even larger goals by 2050, encouraging international cooperation in addition to local and national action. Creating spaces for decision makers, business and religious leaders, and academics from all fields of study to collaborate and spur action around climate change. Enhancing collaboration between regulatory agencies and the private sector to enact sensible, effective public policies. And such concrete actions as reducing municipal food waste to maximize resources and cut emissions. Now, in December, some of you will attend the United Nations Conference on Climate Change in Paris. At that event, uh, uh, Rahm and his colleagues will present the findings of the Bending the Curve report. Once again, the University of California will serve as a role model for other institutions and, once again we will do so fueled by the passion of our students, the expertise of our faculty, the support of our external partners, and the dedication and innovative thinking of our staff. If it remains unaddressed, climate change poses the potential to unleash massive economic, political, environmental, and societal ramifications on how and where we live. It is our responsibility as leaders, as academics, as, as human beings on this planet to protect the planet that we call home. So today we'll hear from UC leaders, the business community, colleagues from the United Nations, and state and federal governments, leading researchers, and from Governor uh, Jerry Brown on the ways that we can best work together to slow and reverse the perilous effects of climate change. So I look forward to a day of productive discussion and promising new ideas. And I anticipate that by 2025, when the University of California is carbon neutral, that the rest of the world in seeking climate solutions will say, well let's go back to twenty fifteen, when they had that summit at UC San Diego. And let's see if we can do what the University of California did. Fiat Lux, let there be light.
2: Next up, it's my uh, extreme honor to uh, introduce uh, uh, distinguished professor uh, Mario Molina. Um, he is a man who needs no introduction. I only make that statement by the fact uh, he's number one in the selfie poll uh, outside in the, in the patio. And as as uh, as Rom last night at dinner perfectly stated that his work that led to his Nobel Prize <clears throat> will, in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, be etched in history. Professor Molina,
3: I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to uh, talk to you uh, this morning. Uh, I put this up here. You can see what's my homework to talk about advising presidents of Mexico and the U.S. and what can we expect of uh, COP21. I'll try to do that in just a few minutes, and if there's time left, I'll also give you some thoughts on my perception of uh, some policy and communication issues connected with with climate change. This is just a summary of what this uh, United Nations Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCC process, has started, as you can see, in, in, in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, but the the COPs, the Conference of the Parties started in 1995, and uh, there are a lot of expectations for Paris. Uh, The Paris Climate Conference, the COP21, for the first time in over 20 years of negotiations, aimed to achieve a legally binding and universal agreement with the aim of keeping global warming below two degrees C. As you see, that's connected with the meeting here with with the (coughs) carbon neutrality project. But see, the the main message is, (coughs) this has been 20 frustrating years, not very much has happened, okay. The one perhaps uh, notable event was the Kyoto, Protocol, which, as you know, was not ratified by the United States and by other countries. But it has a very big problem, a flaw that is now, fortunately, behind. And it is that it was uh, arranged so that only developed nations would have to do something about climate change to begin with. And developing nations, emerging economies would come later. That, that's obviously not sensible nowadays and... Uh, so uh, uh, that's one of the reasons the Kyoto Protocol didn't really take off. But the, 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 there's a big challenge, the two degree challenge is uh, actually not expected to be reached with the with commitments in Paris. But nevertheless, it's a very positive step. At least it's pointing in the right direction. And the hope is that in, in the next few years, we would do better reaching that goal, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on that. First, let me go back and make a few comments about the two degrees, and that uh, happens to some extent in the Copenhagen Accord. Uh, what happens is that in this particular uh, COP, uh, 2009, there were many heads of states, and over a 100 of them agreed... On, on this uh, statement, that namely to hold the increasing global temperature below two degrees Celsius. Now, that was only the heads of states. The, the negotiators didn't quite agree that they thought that was their job. But th- nevertheless, this is an important uh, uh, point to make, because uh, uh, practically all the heads of states agree with this. Now, where do the two degrees come from? Um, It's not quite what uh, it's often stated, that it's what the science tells us. There's no sharp boundary that if the temperature rises less than two degrees, not much will happen, but above two degrees we're really in danger. It's really more a a compromise, a commitment. Uh, It's something reasonable that will uh, keep the economy in, in very reasonable shape, and indeed, going above two degrees is, uh, is quite risky. I'm gonna say a few more words about that, but it, it's really that uh, sort of mix of economics, science, and practicality, what is feasible. Now, even that these two degrees, which again is meant not to be terribly fast so that the economy can uh, do well, it's an enormous challenge, okay? The idea is for the, the concentration of, of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, uh, CO2 equivalent, not to go above about 450 parts per million. As you know, there are some efforts and some groups that try to keep this temperature rise less than one and a half degrees, and the concentration and not to rise above three, 50 well that's already that's already gone okay we are, we are now at 400 already in terms of of co2 so but nevertheless this is extremely challenging but you see that's very much in in in, in, uh, in line with, with the carbon neutrality project with the summit that we are participating here with uh, so one of the important questions that i was alluding to is Is this feasible? Well, the answer is, in principle, yes. There's no simple uh, sort of uh, magic solution. You have to do many things at the same time. Energy efficiency, renewable energies, and so on and so forth. But a big question is, how much will this cost? Is is this at all possible? Because there are one of the myths that goes around, is that uh, even if indeed... Climate change is a big worry. We cannot really do anything about it because it will just ruin the economy and thousands of mil- millions of jobs will be lost. That's really a myth. And th- what I'm pointing out here is what uh, the economists, the, the group of experts have done. There are, of course, different opinions, but this is one of the perhaps best-known ones from uh, Nick Stern, the, the Stern report that came out already some years ago. And the, the point to be made is that if you uh, go about creatively trying to reach this goal, if you do it in a clever way and if you do it on, on a global scale, it can be a, a modest price, maybe 1-2% of global GDP. And if you look some decades ahead, that, that eventually is just within the noise, the economic noise of the system. So that, that's actually... A bargain; It's relatively cheap, I'll, uh, <clears throat> as you can see, but you have to be clever about it. This is just talking about the actual cost. Now, I've been working with Nick Stern for some time now. More recently, he's made a point that I think is, is very important that I want to highlight here, which is that his, his earlier... Uh, calculations were fine in terms of uh, more or less the the uh, sort of the, the price one two percent, but the actual cost what will it cost to the economy, and we see we even saw yesterday some figures that it's uh, this percent or that percent that 's really not a sensible way to compute what will happen in decades from now because you cannot put that in dollars anymore okay uh, you can see here the economic models are woefully inadequate, so severely underestimate the scale of the threat, because if you really have disasters, uh, you cannot evaluate them just in terms of, uh, of dollars. Okay. So that's a very important issue. Now, what I'm going to do before I talk about uh, working with uh, President Obama and uh, President Peña Nieto, let me just give a message. That's a main message I like to give from a consensus of of experts. This is climate scientists working together with economists. And we, we saw one of these figures yesterday already. This is what's to be expected towards the end of the century. That depends, of course, very much on whether we do things or not. But what I'm highlighting here is from the results from the IPCC, and it's the the, the red or uh, orange figures there. It's what would happen with business as usual. Now, this perhaps you could think it's a little exaggerated. It's already bending a little bit and so on. But the, this is the point of what what I'm saying in the, with this and the next slide is. Uh, a worry that we have, and it's really the, the point is made to the deniers and the skeptics. As we heard yesterday, also in every society, there are extremes people who deny climate change, people who think it's a, a tremendous worry, and so on, and there are people in the middle. And normally we shouldn't worry about it, except that here the extreme denying climate change happens to be the Republicans controlling Congress. So that's why we should worry about it, okay? It's a bottleneck for international negotiations at the moment. So that's why I put here this scenario, which is the high scenario from the IPCC, because that's what would happen if we follow their advice. Just don't worry about it because uh, we need to keep jobs and so on. But look at the, the, the point being made in this figure is that temperature can rise perhaps more but it can rise even more. And this is best perhaps described with these wheels from my colleagues at MIT. I spent many years as a professor at MIT working with, with, with this group. And the point being made here is we are, it's like a, uh, like a roulette. And we are now working with a roulette here at the left. And it has a red portion, okay? The temperature might go, this is towards the end of the century, perhaps. You know, things are already happening with climate change, but this is just a projection of what's possible. And there is here a one in four, one in five chance that we'll go into the red portion, which is the same result as the IPCC. This is MIT's model, which is very large, very complete, it incorporates Uh, an economic, global model, and so on. But we can, of course, change it if we stabilize CO2. This is uh, 550, Uh, 450 is, of course, what we would like to, to keep the temperature below two degrees, but even that would be a very large gain because we do away with the red portion. So let me summarize what this means. This means that there's one chance in five maybe if you want one chance in 10 or so, that the temperature will go above five degrees in a few decades. And going back to Nick Stern's slide, you cannot calculate how much will that cost. It will be tremendous disasters. It will be totally unacceptable. It's it's an unacceptable risk for society. And here, particularly, again, I think of the young people and I think of future generations, not just the economy. Uh, when we're talking about the future, again, sometimes people think, well, why don't you let future generations worry about it? Well, no. We, our standard of living, depends on what past generations did. Okay? And most people have children or, or uh, grandchildren or what have you. And if I ask them, are you willing to invest something in elementary schools? You're not going to see the return of your investment in elementary schools for decades. Okay? Why the hell do you invest that? Well, of course, we want generations, future generations, to to have at least the same opportunities that we have. So this is the main message, if you want, from that I want to convey from the economist's perspective also that we should not necessarily focus on the most likely temperature change. We should focus on this risk. One in five, one in ten is totally unacceptable. Just think of airplanes, buildings, whatever. Society does not accept that type of risk. Anyhow, let me move on and tell you what would we need to really uh, decrease that risk or to reach the two degrees, well, the best way would be to really put a a price on emissions. And that's unlikely to happen in Paris yet, perhaps in in, in a future COP, again, because the U.S. at the moment is not ready to ratify such such an agreement. But from, from the economics perspective, this is a much more efficient way of reaching the goal than putting norms, regulations, and so on. That turns out to be several times more costly if you do the calculations. But of course you need to do other things. Investments in energy technology, that's again one very important task for universities. So I'm very glad of course that we're working here with all the, the University of California with all the campuses. And you need international cooperation. And of course there are win-win measures. And here again, this is, I want to highlight that for, for what we are uh, planning to do here at the University of California. Many things can be done currently that are win-win, but not everything. There are some things that do cost, and that's where you do need an international agreement. Okay, so moving on. Uh, advising President Obama, will have been a member of PCAST with President Clinton as well. But with President Obama, we're very proud that uh, we're a group of 20 scientists, but we deal with all sorts of scientific issues, and that includes uh, health issues, uh, cyber attacks, what have you, everything that you can think of connected to science. But climate change and environment is just part of it, and there are just two or three of us in the group that deal with that. Uh, Ernie Moniz was part of that group, he's now, of course, Secretary of Energy, but what you can see here is we made some suggestions to President Obama what to do, and we're very happy that he actually responded. Okay, The Climate Action Plan is a very important step, uh, cutting carbon pollution in the U.S. Uh, another thing that happened much more recently is the, this Clean Power Plan. And I, won't, I don't have time to go into the details, but again, even more recently, it's quite important, quite interesting that many companies are now agreeing to actively participate in, in this process. Okay. And uh, in M- Mexico, I've also been working particularly with the former president, Felipe Calderon, but also with Peña Nieto. And Mexico was one of the first developing countries to uh, provide an INDC, that is, the plans, how, to, how much to curtail. And here again, you can see we. We were advising President Peña Nieto and, of course, the Minister of Environment and of Energy. And the, the important thing is that Mexico is com- committing, uh, as a country, unconditionally to reduce emissions, but, of course, to reach the two degrees, you would need to do more, and that's where you need uh, in some international help. Okay. And so uh, I want to make a point about communication, because I think that one is terribly important. Last year, I started a project with the AAAS uh, and it, it, with climate experts. The idea was to summarize the science so that it would be better communicated to the public. And we came up with a report which is called What We Know. And th- the first point is to dismiss this uh, uh, myth that came out. Yesterday, we heard it because there was a, a a very large investment from the deniers in public relations to the media so that they would always ask, well, there are some people, some scientists, that think this way, but there are many others that think some other way. Well, the point is that, as you know, that there have been surveys, that have been very well documented, more than 97% of the scientists agree completely that not only that climate change is happening, but it's caused most likely by human activities. And by the way, we had time... We know the 3% very well, okay? And, <laughs> and they don't make much sense. Okay? But <laughs> anyhow, but we are at risk of pushing the climate system. This is what I was just talking about, and that's what we, want, we wanted to highlight, and the, the cost is going to rise. But the final point I'm, I'm going to make is the second stage of this project we're proposing. We're proposing, we're starting to carry it out is communicating it to the public. But what's important is really communicating with Congress. And they're beginning to change. They're beginning to be ready to accept a price on emissions. Not a tax. Don't call it a tax. But it's a price on emissions as long as it's revenue neutral. So that's beginning to be a possibility. But the way we're going about this, as scientists, we don't communicate very well. So we're working with professional communicators because the public has a different language. As we heard yesterday, we have to motivate them, but I think the very important motivation here is for their children, for future generations. So we have high hopes that activities like this, coupled with activities like the ones we're engaging here, University of California setting an example, California as a state setting an example to contrast what U.S. Congress is doing, because in the world there's still the perception that the U.S. is sort of not very active here. That's why California's activities are... Really crucial. So I very much commend you and let's keep working at it. Thank you very much.
4: Mara, those brilliant comments. Thanks so much for doing. Dan Kemman, UC Berkeley. And I wanted to ask you I was delighted to see the carbon pricing, in which I agree. And I wonder what you think would be the impact if the University of California system. Uh, adopted carbon pricing, perhaps in two stages, where we would study the areas where we know how to do the pricing today, and then we would make the areas where it's less clear a research topic, but commit over time to adopting internal pricing, at least as a business requirement, as I worked on at the World Bank, but moving that ahead as part of our agenda?
3: Sure. I, I think that's a very good idea. In fact, I should have mentioned the Mexican government. There is a carbon price in Mexico. At the moment, it's nominal, but it's just a way to get started. And as you know, several countries have it, and some uh, companies, some oil companies, have it as well as a shadow price. So I think that's a great idea. Just a word of caution, because here in the United States, sometimes it's misinterpreted. It should not be meant to be the actual price of that, that of the damage. It's just a number so that you can get started in a reasonable way, but it's not what it costs to society. As long as you recognize that, I think it's a very great idea. Thank you very much.
2: Well, we are on a roll here. If you look at the uh, voices of leadership from the first speech from Janet Napolitano, Dr. Molina, and we continue with the presentation by my colleague, uh, Ram Ramanathan, who is the distinguished uh, professor here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the chair of this summit, who miraculously, miraculously in four months, put together the summit the executive summary, and the leadership to make this all happen. You are amazing. (laughs) Dr. Ramanathan.
4: Uh, Byron, there was a problem with your introduction, but I'll come to that later. Well, you know, we, we heard last yesterday and today but the nature of the problem and uh, are the thinking out there. So it's now time for us to roll up our sleeves and address the solutions. Does anyone want to guess what we need to do? Come on, you heard me at my slogan yesterday. Very good. So that's exactly what 50 of us took us, took us a challenge. And uh, so it's my great privilege on behalf of the University of California to announce uh, the 10 solutions. So just to set the uh, stage, this is the correction to uh, Byron's uh, introduction. He said the, I did it in four months. It was genuinely, genuinely with no sense of exaggeration and no sense of false modesty. The one thing I don't have is modesty. (laughs) So uh, it's a genuine group effort. We just couldn't have done, and I think there'll be time for Sandy and I to thank those uh, involved. I was strictly told to keep my time limit. Just to give you one example, we finished this report, and, you know, the executive record time, we gave it to UCOP, Uh, I think two days before we were going to uh, officially distribute it and they came with this graphic I I wish of all the things in this report I had thought of that graphic It's just brilliant what we are trying to brand Uh, yeah so these are the 50 they were drawn from all the 10 campuses and the DOE labs and uh, it was, I think, like I said yesterday. Anyone we asked, unless they had some major commitment, like going on a, you know, a assignment, everyone said yes, and and they just did it. They produced a 300-page report, which is still being reviewed, and the lead author. So they wrote these seven chapters. It's still on. It's on online, uh, but with password protected and we distilled the thoughts from these seven chapters into this executive summary, which is what I'm going to present today. These are the lead authors. All the 10 campuses are represented. I forgot to mention uh, uh, CARB is one of the authors in the chapter and the DOE labs. We heard from all of them yesterday. So what is it we, we did? So let's talk about bending that curve. Um, those of you who heard me yesterday, you can go to sleep for the next five minutes. I'm going to repeat that. Um, we have already put 2 trillion tons of carbon dioxide as of 2010. Each trillion, our best of climate model says 50% probability commits the planet to three quarters of a degree. So a degree and a half is already in the bank. Okay, Not counting the other greenhouse, just carbon dioxide. And we put the next trillion. We're shooting past two degrees, two and a quarter degrees, fifty percent probability. So what we're trying to do in this stretch that next trillion, instead of putting it in twenty years, stretch it to forty. If you want to stay under two, you can't exceed trillion. And, and trillion looks a lot. We put 38 billion tons every year. It's going at 2%. So, in the next, if you want me to go to the second decimal place, 20.66 years, you'd up with the next trillion. We want to stretch it to 40. And our community has come up with another uh, way to bring this stretch it to 60 years. So, if we adopt these ten, 10 solutions, we can give the planet at least 50 years before we hit the two, hopefully we would avoid it forever. So that's the challenge, okay? So whenever we go to see the two degrees by 2050, that's 35 years from now. So that's our challenge, that's the urgency. We've got to act now because otherwise in 20 years, we would have sent our children, our grandchildren, and generations unborn to an uncertain future. Like Mario said, it's a roulette. Honestly, you can't trust our climate models, and you can't trust anything I say beyond two degrees. We don't know that world, okay? So keep track of two timescales. Now to 2030, if you don't do anything, that trillion is up there. So I got to stretch it. Okay, something has to happen by two thousand and thirty. <clears throat> so when I was asked to do this, I was drafted. Like I said, uh, uh, Margaret Leinen, Chancellor of Scripps, I work at Scripps, and our Vice Chancellor. Those are the two I can't say no and still stay in this campus. <laughs> so, but I was so glad they drafted me. So I checked into what this carbon neutrality is. What shook me out and said, this is the cause I'd like to work on is the statement by Janet DiPolitano. There is no reason that UC can't lead the world in this quest. Okay? So that's the call the 50 of us responded to. And, and what is our starting premise? UC is a fantastic living laboratory for carbon neutrality, thanks to or Nepal gen- uh, Thomas Initiative and all the campus chancellors. So that one is the Internet of Things. I'm not going to mention in the campus because I don't have time to build all the 10. I'm just showing four. The Internet of Things, making the buildings efficient by already 30%. Buildings contribute about 34% out of the, the 32 gigatons of fossil fuel. That's about 10 gigatons. You save 30%, right? All, already you've given me 3 billion tons. Okay, And the next is food waste. The third largest source of greenhouse gas emission next to China and the U.S. is the food we throw away. Can there be a more low-hanging fruit than that? Right? And that's what one campus came up with, this biodigester. You put your banana peels, which out comes a light shining on you. Okay? And... Uh, Hydrogen fuel cell running buses, that's the biggest problem, transportation. And we know why the transportation is a difficult problem. We are not able to simulate real-time exchange still. Anyway, so going to that, let me start with solution one. We want to bend that curve immediately, okay? So by reducing the short-lived climate pollutants, their time scale is few weeks to 15 years. So you start emitting your black carbon from your diesel trucks. Or we make sure 3 billion who depend on cook stoves, major source of black carbon, they are gone two weeks from now. Okay? Methane is gone 10 years. So what we do as you see in that curve, you push it from the top immediately. So it becomes a concave, you see that yellow. And then do sustain that by pulling down the CO2 emission. So you push it from the top immediately so you have a bend and then you pull down at the other end for the CO2, okay? So that's the starting, that's the science. But we know, uh, just from the American experience, we have left behind 150 million Americans behind. Okay. So change in the attitude and behavior is the fundamental starting point. So these two solutions address individuals. Okay. So how do we do that? Communication, education and understanding, we heard from our colleague from UCLA about polling students. So this is where universities excel. And the next one, this has to be taught at every public meeting, every church, every mosque, every synagogue, every temple. Then we will have the change. And we have a fantastic leader in Pope Francis. And other religious leaders are following very close to that. We heard about uh, the Bartholomew, and I know about the Dalai Lama. And all. So these are the two about social transformation, and this addresses the intergenerational and intragenerational equity. Okay, what is the intergenerational equity? Our climate change is going to last for centuries to thousand years. So our unsustainable consumption is going to affect generations. intra we already heard 3 billion are still dealing with 18th century technologies. They have not heard about fossil fuels. We know they're going to be the worst affected with climate change because they're all living in subsistence farming. So there are morality issues, there are is ethical issues, there are equity issues. Let these two address that. Fourth one. We need governance. We know that. This is what California excels. Our CARB, and we heard from our Republican mayor how San Diego is going to go zero carbon in 2035. We need to take these examples. We already have our governor, we're going to hear from him, He's under two MOU. They have entrained 25 nations. University of California is a city-state. We have half a million population. We go carbon neutral 10 years, there are going to be scalable solutions coming from that. Going on to fifth and sixth, so we address individual, we address government. Next, we need to bring our corporate friends together. Without them, we're not going to solve the problem. Our economists came up with this market-based instruments, cap and trade, carbon pricing, that's not going to work everywhere. Then go to direct regulatory measures. So we have done that. We know what not to do. So that's an important example to take to the rest of the world. And this, again, something the University of California. And we publicly call for terminating subsidies. $540 billion of direct cash is given for fossil fuel use. Since they've been around for 200 years, I think it's about time to stop that subsidy. And the externalities is about $4.5 carbon pricing. So now we go to the technologies, right? We have set the the structural change. Now we unleash the solutions. So already, the things which have been tried in this campus, in San Diego, in the state, in terms of photovoltaics, wind turbines, these are all here, off the shelf. It's a question of scaling it up. That would give us about 40% reduction by 2030, if it is scaled globally. So this is where I think University of California could be a spectacular incubator of technologies. We try them out here, and then we scale it up. Okay? Goes to eight. So now we are addressed from to 2030 to take us beyond 2030 to that 80% reduction Mario showed you need some huge innovation. They have to start now. We know we are stru- still struggling with battery storage, right? Hydrogen is there, but it's not there yet. It's so a huge push that's needed. We are going to hear from our next speaker about all that. So we are talking about pulling the curve, but I said we had to push it from the top, and that's where it comes in the short-lived climate pollutants. We heard excellent presentation by Helena from Paris, on the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. They already have 50 countries behind us. If University of California with our governor, Jerry Brown, can bring India and China that people that problem is solved. So you cut those four pollutants, you're gonna gain 0.6 degrees by 2030. What does that mean? It'll buy us 25 years. The warming is about quarter degree a decade. So remember, if the carbon technology guys can stretch out the trillion tons in the of next to 40, shortly pollutants will give another 20. So we have until 2060 to keep it under two. Then it's up to those guys sitting on the gallery to solve the rest of the problem. So the 10th, we talked about the source, the next is the sink. Remember the ocean, we heard about Roger Rebell's work, ocean takes about thirty percent. The ocean may decide not to cooperate with us. It may not take thirty percent. And and the terrestrial biota. So there we are recommending, of course, uh afforestation, reduced deforestation. And the third, which is my favorite, food waste. Three billion tons of CO2 are spent in the food, which doesn't enter our stomach. We produce it. And if we can recover that, convert it to methane, that's what Merced Campus has done. So we address that. That will give us about 7 billion tons. Well, I sent these solutions to uh, UNEP, and uh, uh, Akim will tell me later tonight but I sent it to Vatican. I was just, I mentioned to yesterday, and there was a noise in my office. My wife came rushing. What happened? I told her this is what happened. This is the email I got from the Chancellor of the Pontifical Academy of Science. I'll let you read it for about 30 seconds. So uh, I think they have said they'll work with us to carry this message to, the, to Paris. And we are having a major conference at the Vatican, November 13th to 15th, Education for Sustainability. That's our solution number three. And they asked us to present this. Some of the top educators in the world are coming to that. We're going to brief Pope Francis. The last time I briefed Pope Francis, It was in the parking lot. They gave me two sentences. This time I bargained bargained for four sentences. We'll see what (laughs) goes in. So finally, what would make all this possible? We have excellent leadership at our campus, but we are so blessed. It's race goes to the top. We're going to hear from Garner Brown soon, and so that is exhortation to us. So all the way from individual campuses to our president, Janet Napolitano, and to our governor, we have no excuse not to roll up our sleeves and get to work. So I'll tell my 50 co-authors, let's not revel in what we have accomplished. The work is just starting. The emails and the phone calls from Ramanathan will start coming from tomorrow.